0: Chapter Two of Prophets, Priests, and Kings by Alfred George Gardiner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two George Bernard Shaw. I once had the duty of presiding at a gathering assembled to hear an address by Mr. Bernard Shaw. What is the title of your lecture? I asked. It hasn't got one, he replied. Tell them it will be announced at the close i did so adding that afterwards he would answer any reasonable questions i prefer unreasonable questions he said in a stage whisper for forty minutes he poured out a torrent of mingled jibes at his audience flashes of wit and treasures of good sense then he leapt into his coat seized his umbrella cut his way through his admirers with good-humoured chaff, suffered the address of an old Irish lady who had known him in childhood, and was as voluble as himself, and finally fled along Regent Street like a soul in chase, his tongue flaying all created things, until at a tube station he turned on his heel and vanished as if by magic. It was like the hurry of the wind, keen as a razor, dry and withering as the east mind and body alike at the gallop trained down to the last ounce he is a hurricane on two legs a hurricane of wrath flashing through our jerry-built society he is the lash laid across the back of his generation he whips us with the scorpions of his bitter pen and we are grateful he flings his withering jibes in our faces and we laugh he lampoons us in plays and we fight at the pay-box we love him as bill sykes dog loved that hero because he beats us his ascetic nature revolts at our grossness i once invited him to a dinner to a colleague he accepted the invitation and came when the dinner was over he would not sit at meat with men who eat flesh like savages fuddle their brains with wine pollute the air with filthy smoke lady randolph churchill has recorded that when she invited him to dinner he declined to come and eat dead animals what can we look for he asked from a society based on such loathsome habits except the muddle we are in a morass of misery and sweated labour at the bottom sustaining an edifice of competitive commerce as greedy as it is merciless at the top a nauseous mixture of luxury and flunkeyism waste and disorder everywhere religion and organized hypocrisy justice based on revenge which we call punishment science based on vivisection empire based on violence god perchance is in heaven but all's wrong with the world what can a reasonable man do but war with it what are you people crowding here for?" he asked a fashionable audience, at an anti-sweating meeting, to hear me jibe at you, not because you care a rap for the wretched victims of your social system. If you cared for them you would not come here for amusement. You would go outside and burn the palaces of fashion and commerce to the ground. For he has in an unrivaled degree the gift of being unpleasant. It is a rare gift most of us even the worst of us perhaps especially the worst of us are full of tenderness for the susceptibilities of others we cultivate the art of polite falsity because to give pain to others is so great a pain to ourselves we are like the irish driver in john bull's other island sure he'd say whatever was the least trouble to himself and the pleasantest to you we lack the courage to be unkind if we stab at all we prefer to do it in the back mr shaw enjoys giving pain because he knows it does you good he cuts you up with the scientific serenity of an expert surgeon who loves the knife he probably never paid a compliment to any save mr bernard shaw in his life when a well-known free-trader now in parliament sat down after reading an elaborate paper before the fabian society mr shaw rose and observed we have come to the end of the intolerable tedium inflicted upon us it is incredible that any one should have prepared this crude alphabet of the subject above all for the fabian society there is something to be said for mr shaw's frankness it clears the air It tears away the cloak of shams and confronts us with the naked realities it does not make him loved but then he would hate to be loved he rather loves to be feared he has spoken of himself somewhere as being by temperament economically minded and apprehensive to the point of old maidishness it is a happy figure He is like an elderly spinster with a fierce passion for order and a waspish tongue coming into a house turned upside down by a crowd of boisterous, irresponsible children. Of these by far the worst are the English, the dull, unimaginative English, full of illusions and incompetence and unctuous humbug, with the cheerful bumptiousness that money comfort and good feeding bring to all healthy people a nation of tom broadbent's made great by coal and iron and the genius of quicker and more imaginative peoples the successful englishman to-day he says when he is not a transplanted scotchman or irishman often turns out on investigation to be, if not an American, an Italian, or a Jew, at least to be depending on the brains, the nervous energy, and the freedom from romantic illusions, often called cynicism, of such foreigners, for the management of the sources of his income. But he loves the Englishman, and he will tell you frankly why. He loves him because he is fool enough to make a lot of Bernard Shaw we have had no more merciless satirists since his fellow-countryman swift was amongst us but unlike swift he does not hate men he is only filled with scorn at their follies their sentimentalities and superstitions he has no reverence and no respect for the reverences of others religion to him is like a fog in the mind blurring the vision of realities l'enfant, he would say with voltaire and he looks for the age of pure reason when intellect shall have straightened out all the tangled skein of life and men resting secure in their sciences and utilities shall laugh at the pathetic superstitions of their fathers and turn with content to the exquisite syllogism of material things that they have put in their place it is not a new dream it is a dream as old as the conflict between intellect and emotion it is based upon the assumption that the human soul has no yearning that cannot be satisfied by the scientific adjustment of our material relationships to the universe a theory to which the aristotelian replies that social wrong is only the symbol of spiritual wrong and that spiritual remedies will alone heal what is ultimately a spiritual malady mr shaw sees everything sharp and clear and without atmosphere he is all daylight but it is a daylight that does not warm it is radiant but chilling he affects you like those march days when the east wind cuts through the sunshine like a knife and there is another difference between him and swift he has none of the great dean's morbidness it was said of swift that he had the terrible smile it was the smile that foreshadowed insanity mr shaw has a smile of sardonic sanity max Beerbohm's caricature of him as mephistopheles holding his forked tail with one hand nursing his red beard with the other is astonishingly true in spirit as he leaps to his feet straight and lithe with that bleak smile upon his lips you feel that here is a man who sees through all your cherished hypocrisies and can freeze up all your emotions he sprays you with acid as if you were an insect and you curl up like the fat boy he wants to make your flesh creep mum mrs grundy is always present to his mind the symbol of smug self-satisfaction, of ignorant content, of blind superstition, the symbol, in fact, of English society. He had a double motive in shocking her. It appeals to his puck-like instinct for mischief. He loves to see the look of horror overspread her features as he smashes her idols. But there is a more serious purpose behind his iconoclasm. He breaks the image in order to restore the reality. Shakespeare is a fetish, and he tells you that he is a greater than Shakespeare. The English home is the Englishman's boast, and he tells you that it is the source of our selfish exclusiveness, and that no good will be done till it is destroyed. Pull down the walls, he would say with Plato. They shelter at best a restricted family feeling. They harbor at the worst avarice, selfishness, and greed pull down the walls and let the free air of a common life blow over the place where they have been or as whitman expresses it unscrew the locks from the doors unscrew the doors themselves from their jams by god i will accept nothing which all cannot have their counterpart of on the same terms he is uh, careless about having a beautiful home he wants a beautiful city He is indifferent about his wife's diamonds. He wants to see the charwoman and the seamstress well-dressed. If they are not, he would send them to prison, for his philosophy comes from Erewhon, where poverty and illness were the only punishable crimes. If poor people were given penal servitude instead of sympathy, there would soon be an alteration for the better, he says, with his characteristic extravagance. The love of money is the root of all evil, we say unctuously as we snatch for more. Money is the most important thing in the world, he says, and he insists that every one of us shall have five hundred pounds a year. Money represents health, strength, honor, generosity, and beauty, as undeniably as the want of it represents illness, weakness, disgrace, meanness, and ugliness. Flee from sin, says the preacher. Flee from poverty, which is the root of sin says Mr. Shaw. He is a preacher in cap and bells. He calls the crowd together with a jingle of jest, and then preaches his sermon in extravagant satire. He is so terribly in earnest that he cannot be serious. Least of all is he serious about himself. He is himself his own gayest comedy. I have been hurt to find myself described as a middle-class man, he says. I am a member of the upper classes. My father was a second cousin to a baronet. That is what gives me self-respect and solidity of standing. His father was an ex-civil servant in Dublin, who invested his money in flour-milling, and a most surprising failure he made of it. His mother kept the pot boiling by teaching music, and young Shaw earned eighteen pounds a year as a clerk. At twenty he came to London, and passed several years in an atrociously seedy condition. "'I haven't a penny in the world,' said a beggar to him one night neither have i said the delightful shaw with cheerful comradeship he lived on his parents who found it difficult to live on themselves he is not ashamed he boasts of it i did not throw myself into the struggle for life i threw my mother into it he wrote novels which nobody read scintillated in the star as a musical critic helped to found the fabian society wrote plays on the tops of omnibuses married for money he will tell you with engaging raillery while his charming wife smiles at his rogueries and became the idol of the intellectuals and the most piquant figure in the english-speaking world riches have poured into his lap from the pay-boxes of every civilized land and his fame is a part of the common stock of the world but he is unchanged with it all he is still the gentleman of fortune living upon his wits his sword ever in his hand he comes into your midst with the tail of his coat trailing on the floor what sir you will not tread upon the tail of my coat you will not fight you have no quarrel sir a fig for a quarrel. I will tweak your nose, sir. And what a duellist the fellow is! What irony, what jest, what diabolical self-composure! His wit is as swift as the lightning, as happy as the song of birds." Boo roared a voice from the gallery when he came forward amid thunders of applause at the close of one of his plays. Boo! I agree with you, sir, he said, but what are we two against so many? Mr. Shaw, said a friend who had beguiled him to hear a string quartet from Italy, and, finding him bored, sought to wring a word of praise from him. Mr. Shaw, these men have been playing together for twelve years." Twelve years?' yawned G. B. S. "'Surely we've been here longer than that.'" Few men have rendered more conspicuous service to their time. The English stage had become a byword, a thing of no more intellectual significance than a skittle-alley mr shaw has worked a revolution he has done it with the smallest of dramatic equipment for he has little imagination slight instinct for character and none of the symbolic sense and suggestiveness that make the dramas of ibsen so vast and cosmic but he has made the contemporary english drama the vehicle of ideas and has rescued it from contempt He has brought it into relation with realities, and turned it into a medium for permeating society with the philosophy of Mr. Sidney Webb. In a word, he has become a playwright in order to preach his extremely unorthodox sermon, and if he uses extravagances, well, so did Dr. Parker, so does Father Vaughan. He exaggerates in order that you may see the truth to which familiarity and convention have blinded you he shocks you in order that you may be shocked at yourself he denounces love because his asceticism revolts from the sensuality that is the desecration of love he denounces conventional morality because he is so fierce a moralist He denounces the law because of his passion for justice. He has such an enthusiasm for humanity that he would put the poor in jail because of their poverty and misery. He would punish the people who have the wickedness to be ill, but he would treat the criminal as we treat invalids. For the sickness of the body is our own wrong, the outrage of natural laws. The sickness of the mind is the wrong imposed on us by a false and vicious social system. In all this topsy-turvyism he is astonishingly sane. I know of no political writing which goes more ruthlessly to the heart of realities than his prefaces to his plays. Take, for example, his treatment of the Irish question. Home rule means Rome rule, cried the Protestant nonconformist. He turns the aphorism inside out. England and Ireland is the pope's policeman, he says, and proves it shaw has stated the irish case once and for all said john dillon to me he is the tonic of his time very bitter to the taste but stimulating he clears the mind of cant he clears the atmosphere of fog he is admirable in small doses but as a sustained diet i say it with the comfortable knowledge that he is not by he is inferior to shakespeare The professional moralist, it has been said, is moral by the strength of his antipathies. Shakespeare is moral by the strength of his sympathies. Mr. Shaw is all antipathies. He is again everything, from the government of the universe to the starch in your collars and the blacking on your boots. He has never agreed with anybody or anything. He rests on himself, secure and self-assertive, his intellect against the world. You turn from his cold lucidity and magnificent cocksureness to the men who speak not to the intellect alone, but to the heart, who are not merely humanitarians, but human beings, who say with Lowell that they believe more than they can give a reason for, and with Carlyle that all our sciences are nothing beside that great deep sea of nescience on which we float like exhalations that are and then are not. Realities are much, but the mystery that invests being is more. The mind is wonderful, but no less real are the intimations of the soul. Let us have a clear intellect, but it is an arid world that shuts out the intuitions of the heart. I see the curl on Mr. Bernard Shaw's lips. Can't, he says, the cant of these dull-witted English, with their ridiculous illusions and sloppy emotions. Perhaps so and yet i believe that behind that scornful smile there is a heart as sensitive as any but a heart which he is ashamed to reveal he has perhaps come nearest to revealing it in that fine saying of his with which one may well close i am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community and as long as i live it is my privilege to do for it whatsoever i can i want to be thoroughly used up when i die for the harder i work the more i live i rejoice in life for its own sake life is no brief candle to me it is a sort of splendid torch which i have got hold of for the moment and i want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations chapter two